right. How is everyone doing? Um, welcome to E3. This is the, as Pastor Dan mentioned, this is the last week of Gallery 13 that we will be looking at uh, a portrait out of, out of the scriptures. And if you've been around here for the last few weeks, you know that next week we're turning the series over to you in something called Cardboard Testimonies, where we want to hear what your, and see what your portrait of discipleship looks like. So uh, if you are interested in sharing that, and really all that's involved in it is completing the sentence, I'm a disciple of Jesus and I, and you see all these taglines around the, the gathering space, it's filling in one of those taglines for yourself, whether it's using one of ours or something that you um, you believe and that resonates with you. It's writing that down. It's being willing to walk up on this platform and show it to everybody. It's not making a speech. It's not uh, being willing, you know, you, have, you don't have to talk. It's very easy, but we would love to see you participate in that. We already have people signed up. We want more. So if you haven't uh, signed up and you're interested, the, probably the best way to do it is to send me an email. And my email is out there and it's uh, on the website and everything. We're going to have a short meeting on Thursday night to kind of go through the particulars of it. It's going to be a piece of cake. But I think the whole point of this series has always been what our story is collectively and how our story meets with Scripture. So please do that. Um, I don't know what, what things are like around your house right now. It's the end of summer, and, uh, you know, and... Uh, some of us are, are weeping and moaning because our time is coming to an end of, of running around and having freedom. Others of us are saying, when can these creatures get out of our house? <laughs> Which is a little bit more where, where I'm at. Um, but uh, we're going to be looking at um, Mary and Martha today. And actually, in all honesty, we're really going to be talking about Mary. And I thought it was interesting uh, a couple weeks ago, it dawned on me that when we started this series off, we started off with a whole week, a whole bunch of weeks of men. We started with Peter and James and John and then John again, and I, there might have been two Jameses in there as well. I'm not sure. But um, it was interesting to me, and I just realized it, that we're ending the series with women. You know, so we've had Priscilla and Aquila. We've had um, Mary Magdalene. We're having Mary this week. We had Lydia. And I didn't set out, I didn't plan that that way, but I just kind of thought it was, it was interesting, especially in light of some things that Mary teaches us about discipleship and following Jesus. So what I want to do is invite, is invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at a short, a short story in Luke. And as you're getting there, I want to kind of set a little bit of the background of uh, who Mary and Martha are. They are sisters. They have a brother named Lazarus. We know this from other gospels. Their, Mary and Martha's story pops up in a couple different ways in a couple different gospels, and it's really, really interesting. They live near Jerusalem in a town called Bethany. And we also know that uh, this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are important to Jesus. We're told a couple different instances where he comes to stay with them. And we know from the Gospel of John that uh, Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, he, he dies uh, one time. One time, probably dies twice, actually. Um, 
But Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house and, and he raises Lazarus up from the dead, does this amazing miracle, this sort of pinnacle miracle. But because of the interactions of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus, most scholars would say that, that this family means something to Jesus personally. They are his friends. They are connected with him. And uh, they, a couple times, just exhibit hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. And, and that's what we're going to take a look at today in, Mar- in Luke chapter 10. So this is the central text that we're going to be looking at. And then we're going to expand a little bit because Luke is saying some very interesting things about discipleship through Mary and Martha's story. But we have to kind of look at a little of what Luke has to say about discipleship. So chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. At which point Jesus said, maybe you didn't know I'm Jesus and you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Uh. I'm going to pause for a moment and ask you guys to pray with me just before we go on. Just, uh, I feel led to do that. God, I know you're here with us. Some of us are very tuned into that fact. Um, some of us, that's a, a tall order to swallow, that you are somehow present with us. But I believe it. And God, I ask in your presence that you would bring peace and clarity to all of us. I pray that we would encounter you this morning. And lastly, God, I pray uh, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pure in your sight. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to point out to you guys, especially in light of what we talked about the series, is something about Mary's presence. And it's simply this, that uh, Martha is in the kitchen preparing a meal for, for Jesus and his disciples. And to be very, very blunt, that's where Mary's supposed to be too. In the first century, uh, and in the first century Judaism, that's where a woman's place is. She's supposed to be in the kitchen preparing the meal, preparing the hospitality for the guests. But Mary's not going to have any of that. And the first thing I want to point out to you, just really to go straight at it, is the bravery of Mary. Because Mary knows she's not supposed to be in that room. And yet she's willing to defy social norms and social customs because she knows Jesus is in her house. And so she says, I know that's where I'm supposed to be, but this is Jesus. And so I'm going to step out and step across lines and across boundaries even though I'm a woman and I'm going to go into the room and I'm going to come out of the kitchen. And what's more, the scriptures tell us that she's sitting where? At the feet of Jesus. 
Do you know who sits at the feet of a rabbi? His disciples do. And again, in the first century, disciples are not supposed to be women. But Mary says, I am having none of this. Jesus is in the house. And so I may not be able, I may not supposed to be in the room, and I'm certainly not supposed to be at his feet. But that's exactly where I'm going. And no rule, no custom, and no sibling is going to stop me from getting there. So that's where she is. And I just wanted to point that out because like we've been, we've been ending this series with, such, with all these stories of these strong and interesting women. And Mary is no different because it takes courage to get out of that kitchen and be like, you know what? I know no one expects me to go. And I know when I walk in the room, I'm going to get a lot of looks, but I'm going in anyway. So that's the text. But what we want to do is, is take a look back at what Mark or what Luke, I'm sorry, is saying about discipleship, particularly through Mary and Martha's story. And to do that, we have to go back a few chapters. So in Luke chapter eight, we see this text in verse 19. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they wanna see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. So Jesus says, my family, my people, the people who are aligned with me do two things. What do they do? They hear God's word and obey it. In other words, what Luke is saying is that if you align yourself with the Jesus movement, you will do what? Two things. You will hear God's word, and obey it. That sets up chapter 10. Chapter 10 is simply a commentary on this verse. Chapter 10 just says, what does it mean to hear and obey God's word? And in chapter 10, Luke says, I'm gonna tell you exactly what it means to hear and obey God's word. As we get to chapter 10, we're told that Jesus is sending out his disciples, 72 of them to go do his work, to proclaim the kingdom, to tell the world, to tell uh, the crowds, to tell the people, Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, the kingdom is coming, it is here, it is among you, it is within you. But then Jesus gives them these particular instructions in verse five. He says, whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. So as Jesus is in the home with Mary and Martha, the first thing we say he's doing is he's doing exactly what he told his disciples to do. He's accepting hospitality. He is in a home because this home has welcomed him and welcomed his message. And so he's in there simply receiving what it is that they are cooking. And I wanna say this before we go any further. If you know the story and if you paid attention to the scripture, there's this image of these two siblings, 
Martha, who's cooking and who's active and working, and Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to talk a lot about Mary. And if you've grown up in church, you know that Mary always gets first billing in this story. Because what? She's chosen the right thing. But here's something, and I shared this with our team this morning. Have you ever thought about the fact that Mary's not in that room unless Martha's cooking? When we were sitting around this morning and we were talking about how busy we get on Sundays, because there's teams of people, we show up very early to brew coffee, to turn on lights. And we all talked about how we're, this irony of we're talking about Mary when we're so busy today. And, and we just talked a little bit briefly about, you know what, sometimes you have to be a Martha so that somebody else can sit at the feet of Jesus. And so when we come here today and we come here every week, it's our service to you. And the people who brew coffee, it's their service to you so that we can labor and do things so that other people can sit at the feet of Jesus for a while. You don't get Mary's sometimes without Martha's. We need each other, right? So a little further on in the chapter, in chapter 10, Mark continues to develop this idea. What does it mean to hear and obey the word of God? We're told that one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? When you read this, the word eternal life in the gospels, you need to understand this is not somebody asking Jesus, how do I get to heaven? That concept of going to heaven and hanging out in a toga and playing a harp with the angels would have been entirely alien to a first century Jew, including Jesus. The eternal life for a Jew was the life that started when God made everything right. When justice rolled like a river and everybody had enough. When our brokenness no longer governed our lives and we lived in freedom and in peace and in kindness. That's what the vision of the Jewish eternal life meant. It meant the world was gonna be fixed. So when the teacher asks Jesus, what do, how do I inherit eternal life? What he's saying is that, how do I get that life that's gonna happen at the end of time? How do I get it to start happening now? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I bring that vision of what they would call shalom, peace, fullness, completeness. How do I bring that into my life right now? And Jesus says, very simply, it's two things. And if you hung around E3 long enough, this should be easy for you to remember. Jesus first says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. In other words, everything you have. It's funny because uh, if you were to look at the way this is actually translated, when uh, the word strength is really translated all of your very much, which to English at first makes no sense, but also is incredibly cool. Love the Lord your God with all your very muchness. Everything you can muster, you love your Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live and really live, like live that kind of life, okay? 
So Jesus, in this story, Luke and Jesus have told you, this is what it means to obey God, to hear and obey God, to be aligned with Jesus and his movement. It means to love the Lord your God with all your very much, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor, right? Pretty clear. That's the commentary. But now Luke takes the commentary and the explanation to another level because the expert of religious law asks a very logical question. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, then who is my neighbor? And then Luke records this story that Jesus tells. And if you've grown up in church, you would know it as the Good Samaritan. Okay, you wanna know what it means to hear and obey the word of God? You wanna know what discipleship looks like to Luke, it means loving your neighbor. And your neighbor is like this guy who starts walking and he gets robbed and he gets beaten and he's lying on the side of the road. And all these spiritual religious leaders, priests and Levites and people who are supposed to have it all together, the people who are supposed to be teaching everybody else what it means to follow God, they just look at this guy bleeding and they go, I don't have time for this. And they'll make up these very spiritual excuses why they can't cross the road to help this man. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan comes by. Now, a Samaritan to us, it's really hard to even fathom what a Samaritan would be like in our world. A Samaritan to the Jewish world was a half-breed, an outcast who had gotten his religion wrong, who was confused and messed up and a second or third or fourth class citizen. They were not welcomed in the Jewish world. And yet, Jesus says, the very guy that is a spiritual zero, he's the one that sees the man and crosses the road to help him. So Jesus says, and Luke says, if you wanna know what obeying the word of God looks like, it doesn't look like having all the right robes or the right job title of being a pastor or a priest or whatever. It looks like crossing the road to help somebody who can give you nothing in return, often at great cost. But Luke's not done yet because right after the Good Samaritan comes Mary and Martha's story. Now, I just got done teaching for a few weeks this class on inductive Bible study. And anybody who was in that class knows that one of the first things you look for when you're looking at a text is you look at repetition. When terms or concepts are repeated, it tells you that the writer is trying to draw your attention to something. And Luke, between the Good Samaritan story and Mary and Martha's story, is repeating something. Now, unfortunately, sometimes these repetitions get lost in the English text. So I'm gonna tell you that between the Good Samaritan story and Mary and Martha, Luke repeats a certain word four, five times. And it is the Greek word tis, T-I-S, T-I-S. And that word translated means certain. So the way this plays out, if you were reading this in Greek, you would see in uh, Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied with a story, a Jewish man, the text actually doesn't say a Jewish man. It says a certain man. And by the way, if you were reading it in the King James, you would actually see this as well. A certain man was traveling. And then in the, next in the Good Samaritan story, it would say, instead of a Samaritan man walking down the road, it would say a certain man was walking down the road. 
And then when you get to Mary and Martha's story in verse 38, it would say, it says, it's actually in the English, as Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village. And then the next line is actually, it doesn't say just when a woman named Martha lived there. It says a certain woman named Martha lives there. So uh, putting on a biblical scholar hat, you would say that Luke is trying to tell you something about these two stories. And he's trying to tell you that you can't understand one without the other. He's pulling them together through this repetition. This phrase repeats through it. So, obeying God, following him, discipleship is not only about crossing the road to help the injured, the bleeding, but it's also about sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay? And that brings us to a certain uncomfortable truth. Uh, maybe it's uncomfortable. I, sometimes it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> that discipleship is ultimately about sitting at Jesus' feet. And that's kind of a duh, okay. But I want you to just kind of wrestle with that for a little while. Or maybe I'll just wrestle with it for a little while. I can fool myself into, into thinking that I sit at the feet of Jesus all the time. But when I'm really, really honest with myself, or when I have been really honest with myself, I come to the conclusion that Jesus is not the one who's teaching me a lot of times in my life. And maybe you're the same way. Because I believe ultimately discipleship, it is about Jesus. It's about sitting at his feet, not just anybody's feet, not just television's feet, not just culture's feet. It's Jesus's feet. And I wanna be clear about this. This is not about dogma or doctrine. It's not about fear, better sit at Jesus's feet or you're gonna be cast into someplace. You know what? You know what it is for me? It's because Jesus, I believe, is a master at living life. I believe that he does life better than any other person that's ever lived. And for me, I don't want to learn from anybody but the best. So I look at his story, and if you read the Gospels, you see a man who's committed to radical compassion. You're an outcast, you're struggling, you're suffering, guess who's there? Jesus. But he's also a man that doesn't hesitate to say, hey, if you come on this journey, it's gonna cost you everything. But at the same time, he's like, hey, if you're not there, I'm with you. I'm still with you. I love you with a love you can't even compare. And I look at my life and I'm like, well, I ain't learning that from anybody else. Culture is not telling me how to be more compassionate. The music that I listened to growing up, it might, take, it might have taught me a lot about how to play guitar and to sing, but it didn't teach me how to be compassionate like that. And you get to like the end of Jesus's life where he's like, you know what? I know I have the option to set up a kingdom that's full of power and military right, might and force and strength, but you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna defeat evil by letting evil kill me. Where's that gonna teach you? Where are you gonna learn that in the world? 
Get ahead by dying. So I look at Jesus and I say, I'm not gonna learn how to do this life that looks like love and peace and kindness. All the things that I want. Okay, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a friend. Last time I checked, being a dad and a husband and a friend, man, it's good to be loving. (laughs) It's good to be kind. It's good to be patient. I ain't gonna learn that from anybody except this rabbi from Galilee. So following Jesus to me is simply about saying, there's nobody else in the world that can teach me what I need to know. And Mary tells us the same thing. Jesus draws out this interesting tension between the two sisters. Martha's cooking the meal. And at the end of the the interaction, Jesus says, Martha, you're worried about many things. Plural, right? But then he says, but Mary has just found this one thing. And there's a contrast there that struck me. The natural anxiety that comes from focusing on a bunch of different stuff in our world, right? When we have a to-do list that is 15, 20, 30, 40 items long, my anxiety level goes up. How many here know exactly what I'm talking about? And peace comes somehow when we focus on this one thing. Our world has a, a term for this phenomenon, right? It's, it's multitasking. How many people consider yourself a multitasking expert? I flirt with this as well. Um, you know, we have phones that can do calendars, email, text. Um, oh, and their phones too. Um, they do all of these things. And so we have the ability to always give our attention to what? Many things. But I, I get obsessed with doing life as best I can. I'm, I'm not an expert on life, but, um, but I try to look at the way I can do things better. And the last couple of years, I've been looking at this thing of multitasking. And you know what the experts and scientists are starting to tell you about multitasking? It's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. And that they would actually say, that multitasking is really a way to do a lot of different things really badly. We fool ourselves into thinking that we are accomplishing more, but we have this anxiety in our life at the same time that comes from focusing and giving our attention to five, six, seven different things. I was reading this week in preparation for today about a Stanford professor who is a communications professor, and he's sort of an expert on the human interaction between digital media and human beings. And he did this test of people who are really heavy, simultaneous media users, multitaskers. So these would be the people who are using media or consuming media, like four types of media simultaneously. What this looks like is this, if you're a student, you're working on a paper, you're listening to iTunes, you got a movie going on Netflix, and you're checking your Facebook status. Some people are like, I did that last night. 
Let's be honest, right? What they found in these people who, who, who live their life this way is some very interesting things. He finds that they, uh, they, they begin to, to lose their ability to filter out information. And he uses this phrase that I love. He said, they become masters of irrelevancy because they give their attention to so many different things that as soon as any little thing comes across their radar screen, they give their attention to it. And this becomes a learned behavior that they lose the ability to focus on the one thing and they become constantly obsessed with the many. And the point of this story is I believe a lot of us are spiritual multitaskers. That we look at that and we think about our phones and we think about maybe our classes and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of, be, part of the job of being a pastor is listening to people's stories and we talk to people and we ask them how you're doing spiritually. And one of the things I like to ask people is how your, how's your prayer life? How's your spiritual life? And I always hear, eh, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And I might say, well, tell me about your prayer life. And they'll say, well, I pray. I pray while I'm driving. I pray while I'm brushing my teeth. I pray, you know, while I'm getting dressed. I pray while. I pray while. And it's always added on to something in our lives. And I wonder if the same thing that affects those people with media affects us with our spirituality. That we give our attention to so many different things while we're trying to be spiritual that we actually become the masters of distraction. And so we try to pray, but we've conditioned ourselves that like any, any thought and we just go, oh. And that part of living the spiritual life and being like Jesus and becoming like Jesus and living the life that Jesus wants us to live is about learning to say, there's one thing that I have to do right now. And it's not gonna be prayer while. It's just gonna be prayer. It's not gonna be reading scripture while. It's just gonna be reading scripture. So I think if I can push this a little bit more, some of us are in this room and we know in our minds that God loves us. Some of us know that there's this God in heaven and he's not angry with us. And we want to hear him say through scripture or through the church that he loves us. And some of us might even know that there's actually amazing, beautiful scriptures that talk about God's love for us. And so we might pick up our Bible and we know where these scriptures are and we wanna read them because we wanna feel and hear something spiritual and meaningful for God. But because of the clutter and the distractions in our life, the times that we spend look and feel a little bit more like this. We might turn to Psalm 139, which has these amazing, beautiful statements about God's knowledge of us. And we start to pray and, or read the scriptures and we go, oh Lord, You've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm gonna say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. 
You place your hand of blessings on your head. Such an honor. See, there's a long-standing tradition in the church and there's scriptures in the Bible that would say that God's first language is actually silence. And that we fool ourselves into thinking that God's first language is shouting, singing, extravagant pageantry. But if you were to look in the Old Testament, you would see that some of the most powerful times when God has shown up, the scriptures say he shows up in a dark cloud. And that when he shows up, rather than like a heavenly choir and trumpets and light shows and everything that's going on all over the place, when God shows up, actually, people don't speak at all. And our senses actually get deprived. We can't see anything. And that we fooled ourselves over time to thinking that the spiritual life is just meant to be lived in the midst and sometimes right alongside noise and clutter. But what Mary teaches us is that sometimes you just have to sit at Jesus' feet with nothing else going on. To put it real succinctly, that one of the most important ways you can hear Jesus is to be quiet and to observe silence. In the context of our series, we would say this, that a, a disciple of Jesus slows down and is willing to slow down. And instead of your spiritual life being an add-on, you're doing one thing while you're doing another, that a disciple of Jesus just simply says, if I want to know what eternal life now looks like, I need to start by quieting myself. I have two questions for you. Have you heard from Jesus lately? Is your life quiet enough to hear from? Second question is this, do you even want to? Because let me be clear, sometimes when Jesus speaks, he's not always gonna say the things we wanna hear. And some of us have become experts at keeping a minimal level of noise in our lives because we're just a little bit afraid of what might happen if the silence comes. And Jesus says, you know that thing that you've been doing that you, you keep doing? You need to stop. You know those words that you've been using you need to choose different ones. You know the thing that you've been thinking about doing, that's a great thing, do more of it. But some of us are terrified of what he might say. But I trust this Jesus. I've 
lived my life with a few teachers that have taught me bad, bad things. And now I've been spending a little bit of time now realizing that this rabbi, this Messiah, this Savior really does know the best way to live. I want to leave you with two challenges. Or, or it's a fact, I guess. I will promise you that if you spend five minutes, 10 minutes, up to 20 minutes if you have it, but if you could spend five minutes a day where your spiritual life is not added on to something else, it will begin to revolutionize your life. You will be connected to your Father in heaven and to this Jesus if you just say, I need to sit at his feet and listen to one thing instead of the many. Consider that. The second thing I want to tell you is this. I was thinking about this. I think if 10 to 20 people in the community of E3 did this, this would turn our church upside down and inside out. Because people who have decided to start listening to one thing and sitting at the feet of one person, man, they do crazy stuff. And there's no telling what God wants to do in our community to make it more loving, more active, more inviting, to write even a bigger story that he's already written in E3. That's the challenge. Are you willing to entertain the fact that maybe listening to all these voices is not getting you where you need to go? And it's time to come out of the kitchen and just sit down and go, I'm here. Teach me. Let's pray.